The Lord is my light and my deliverance. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. This evening, as we prepare to study the Word of God in Zechariah, we have a few seconds for spiritual preparation. Let's close our eyes, bow our heads. I'll give you a few seconds, and then I'll open us in prayer. Dearly Father, we're thankful for these prophets and the message that they have for us. We're uh, studying them uh, very often uh, from a standpoint of uh, many thousands of years uh, having passed. And we, we know that uh, much of the information can sometimes be confusing, but it's there for a purpose and it's there for our edification. We pray that we would... Uh, understand the importance of it, understand the uh, interpretation of it, and be able to properly apply it to our lives. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, tonight, I thought, in honor of baseball starting, I would uh, begin with one of our... Uh, see if I can get this. Uh, a quick baseball... Uh, Okay. There it is. He was Major League Baseball's first superstar, the first man ever inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, and he still has the game's highest career batting average, 366, almost 90 years after he retired. His name is Ty Cobb. Yet despite his historic achievements, he is often remembered for being the worst racist and the dirtiest player ever to take the field. If you know baseball, you've heard the stories. Ty Cobb would pistol with black men he passed on the street. He once stabbed to death a black waiter in Cleveland just because the young man was acting uppity. On the field, he was set to sharpen his spikes to cut up rival infielders. He supposedly had no friends. In the movie Field of Dreams, Shoeless Joe Jackson says that Cobb wasn't invited to the ghostly cornfield reunion because, quote, no one liked the son of a bitch. A lifelong baseball fan, I believe these stories when I set out to write the first authoritative biography of Cobb in 20 years. I've been hearing them all my life, and like a lot of people, I took the repetition as evidence. But to my astonishment, as I delved into the source material, newspapers, census reports, and personal letters, I couldn't find any proof that they were true. On the contrary, Cobb's teammates on the whole seemed to respect him, defending him on the field and off. His opponents said he played the game hard but clean, Wally Shang, a veteran catcher, was typical. He once said, Cobb never cut me up. He was too pretty a slider to hurt anyone who put the ball on him right. One famous photograph from 1912 shows Cobb flying foot first into the crotch of St. Louis Browns catcher Paul Critchell. It looks bad, but pictures can be deceiving. In reality, Cobb is kicking the ball out of Critchell's glove. He didn't spike the catcher. Critchell later said, in a way, it was really my fault. I was standing in front of the plate instead of on the side where I could tag tie as he slid in. Indeed, in 1910, Cobb actually asked the league to require that players double their spikes. And what about the bigotry? How could a man born in Georgia in 1886 not be a racist? Well, as it turns out, Ty Cobb descended from a long line of abolitionists.
generations. His great-grandfather was a minister who preached against slavery and was run out of town for his troubles. His grandfather refused to fight in the Confederate Army because of the slavery issue, and his father, an educator, once broke up a lynch mob. On the subjects of blacks playing with whites, Cobb said, the Negro should be accepted wholeheartedly and not grudgingly. The Negro has the right to play professional baseball, and who's to say he has not? Cobb attended many Negro League games, sometimes throwing out the first pitch and sitting in the dugout with the players. He said Willie Mays was the only modern-day player he'd pay to see. As for that black waiter he supposedly killed, well, in reality, he was a hotel night watchman, and Cobb didn't kill him, he just scuffled with him. And oh yeah, the guy was white. Now Ty Cobb was like the rest of us, a highly imperfect being, too quick to take offense, too intolerant of those who did not strive for excellence with the same almost crazy zeal that he did. But a racist, a dirty player, not true. What is true that almost every accusation against Ty Cobb's character finds its roots in the same source, unfact-checked articles and books published after his death by a bitter opportunistic journalist named Al Stump, whom Cobb had once threatened to sue for making up stories about him. It didn't matter that Stump had spent little time with Cobb or that all of Stump's sources were anonymous, that sports writers who knew Cobb rushed to his defense, or that Stump himself had been banned from publications for writing lies. The scandal was titillating, and it stuck. When the legend meets the facts, print the legend. Meanwhile, a good man's reputation lies in ruins. There are lessons to be learned here. First, it's all too easy to believe lies about people, especially successful ones. Lies take achievers down a few notches, and we like to hear that. And second, if a lie is repeated often enough, it becomes accepted as fact. This has consequences, because lies are the source of much of the world's evil, like the evil of destroying a man's legacy. In this case, a legacy that should be celebrated. Ty Cobb is the most exciting baseball player of all time. He once stole second, third, and home on three consecutive pitches. He once turned a tap back to the pitcher into an inside-the-park home run. He was not a racist or a cheat. It's time to tell the truth about Ty Cobb. I'm Charles Learson, author of Ty Cobb, The Terrible Beauty, for Prager University. To subscribe to our YouTube channel, click here. To help keep our videos free, donate here. And I, uh, in honor of baseball, I played that. I had seen this, uh, or at least read about the book, um, good, you know, over a year ago. And it's uh, it's remarkable how lies can be spread and, and believed, and um, uh, no matter what the individual sometimes does. Although in the case of Ty Cobb, he was already already dead. But sometimes, uh, just out of hatred, resentment, and spite, of course, uh, lies can be spun. And sometimes uh, we don't have a, a real good reason why they are. But um, we need to be careful of believing what we hear because not everything we hear, of course, is going to be true. Uh, we are in Zechariah tonight. Zechariah, we're beginning a new vision. But w before I start, I was asked a question the other day about a particular um, could call a denomination or a belief, and I thought I would do a quick check of the facts here just to make sure we understand what this uh, 
belief, I guess we could say, uh, at least a foundation for what they are. And that has to do with seven-day Adventists and seven-day Adventism. Uh, and as with every uh, belief, there are some variations here and there, mostly because uh, there are going to be various people who add and subtract from them, particularly if they are cults. And Seventh-day Adventism is a cult. And what is a cult? A cult is something that is it's a, a belief that, first of all, has a cult leader. So there's always going to be someone who is placed into a position of authority. And that position of authority, uh, therefore, is the arbiter of authority, uh, arbiter of truth. Secondly, you're going to have the uh, philosophy or the beliefs of that cult leader and those are of course uh, to one degree or another simply what that individual believes or what is said about him or her and uh, it can be uh, either written down or it can be legend, and it's sometimes difficult to tell the difference. And then finally, that legend, as far as a, a cult is concerned, that legend is elevated to either the same uh, importance of Scripture, or sometimes it eclipses Scripture. And in the case of Seventh-day Adventism, it merges with Scripture, but... Uh, there is much uh, to be added to it. And it began uh, back in the 1800s with a Baptist pastor by the name of Miller. And in his study of the uh, the book of Daniel, he thought he his interpretation of a certain text led him to believe that, that he could predict the return of the Lord. And he thought the Lord would return somewhere in the vicinity of 1844 and therefore he predicted it well when uh, the Lord did not return he uh, and some of his followers did their math they reassessed their math and decided well their math wasn't that sharp wasn't that accurate and so they made a reprediction uh, for a subsequent date well the problem is the Lord didn't return then either uh, and uh, Miller uh, whose followers became known as Millerites, he became uh, pretty much discouraged and walked away. But there were some who did not. And one of them who did not was a woman by the name of Ellen White. And Ellen White uh, had visions. And one of the reasons I thought I would tell this story is maybe twofold, but at least one of the reasons is we're studying visions. Uh, she had Visions, and she didn't have just a few. She had many visions, uh, by some counts over 200 of them. And in those 200 visions, she believed that she had been that God had revealed to her uh, the truth uh, for the future and how uh, the Millerites at the time should in fact uh, live their lives. Well, <clears throat> one of the visions that she had. Uh, she in one of those visions she saw the Ten Commandments and in the Ten Commandments she saw the uh, keeping the 
the Sabbath day, the seventh day holy, was circled in gold. And to her, that meant we were supposed to be keeping the seventh day. And so they, since that time, they became known as the Seventh Day Adventists. But some of the things that the Seventh Day Adventists believe is number one, <clears throat> she she did write uh, record what she was seeing in these visions, and uh, she wrote a book, and it was called The Great Controversy. And so this record of her visions and her thoughts, and we might even say her theology, therefore was. Uh, elevated to the level of, of Scripture, and therefore we have um, thoughts and teachings that uh, are believed by them to be authoritative, authoritative as Scripture. And so they add to the authority of Scripture. Secondly, uh, in uh, being obedient to these visions and the book, The Great Controversy, there was much that was not in Scripture. And some of it, in, a, in keeping it, it was necessary for salvation. And so while they would, uh, they would say that, uh, yes, you're saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, they would also add other things to it, or you can lose your salvation. And so loss of salvation uh, is also something that is uh, found in their teaching. And uh, one of the benefits of adding that to any cult or to any teaching is that it requires you to have what would be considered a very righteous life. I mean, if you have the sense that you're going to fail and lose your salvation, and in their teaching, we'll study here in a minute what would what happened to you, uh, then it's a... Uh, a shillelagh to to make you uh, perform better, and very, and that's exactly what we also see in uh, the Latter Day Saints. Um, so, loss of salvation was another one of their uh, teachings. Another one of their teachings is soul sleep. Now, when we come to the the phrase soul sleep, the uh, theology of it is that. Uh, there is no difference between your body and your soul. They're essentially one and the same. So that when your body dies, your soul does as well. Uh, they wouldn't say it that way. They would just say that there's no difference. When your body dies, you have absolutely no consciousness after death. And the only way that you have consciousness after death is if you, in fact, had been redeemed. And you will remain unconscious without any conscious knowledge of what's happening until you're resurrected. And then at that time, you regain consciousness and you have uh, a resurrection body. Uh, however, where they differ naturally with Scripture at that point is that if you, are, if you were not redeemed, if you were not a believer... You do not regain consciousness. You have just been annihilated. So they believe in the annihilation, what we would call the annihilation of the soul or the annihilation of existence. Uh, an unbeliever dies, and that's it. There's no such thing as eternal punish from, punishment for them in the lake of fire. And their argument for that is that uh, a loving God would not 
put an even an unbeliever through the lake of fire. Uh, finally, they believe that uh, um, well, that may have been all I wanted to say about them. But anyhow, there's there that's a um, sometimes a controversy amongst evangelicals as to whether they can fit within what's known as the evangelical uh, under the evangelical umbrella or whether they should be called Christians and the the sense is from um, the majority of those who I think um, would be considered more orthodox is the answer is no no absolutely not uh, it is it's considered to be a cult uh, it's just ha it has too many beliefs that are divergent from Christianity and from the Word of God and uh, therefore one of the reasons I uh, review this is that it's important for us sometimes to know what others believe in order for us to maybe you know talk to them intelligently witness uh, be able to allow them to present their views uh, but then also uh, give them the truth of the word of God so I think that's important alright we are in Zechariah Zechariah chapter 4 we're beginning our uh, fifth vision this is the fifth vision the vision of the lampstand and the olive tree and uh, as I begin this <clears throat> What I'd like to do is see if I can get my, there, what do you know? A uh, very quick review here of Zechariah's eight night visions. And I, I, the reason I, I want to review these first four is because Zechariah has these visions uh, and he has them sequentially and he has them uh, what we believe is rapidly, and therefore they they have a similarity to, or they they are uh, supportive. We would say, first of all, we have the rider on a red horse among the myrtle trees, and this was an indication that God was still in control, that God is aware of what's happening throughout society, and that He is uh, not only in control. But he is, uh, here's the one I wanted. Where is that one? This is the one I wanted. Uh, God is in control of human history. He brings judgment upon the nations that punish Israel. And he still loved Israel and would restore and bless the nation and Jerusalem. Uh, therefore, uh, this was to be a comfort to those who were, uh, uh, to whom, Zechariah would relate them. Secondly, the four horses, the four horns, and the four craftsmen. God will judge the nations that afflicted Israel. And we saw the uh, the opportunity to go through those uh, those various four when we looked at, at the second vision. Thirdly, the surveyor and his measuring line. God promises a future restoration for Jerusalem in the literal messianic kingdom and its prosperity will be so great 
that it will expand beyond its walls and live in complete security. So the continued uh, reassurance for Israel here. Uh, fourth, and this is the one we just finished last week, was God illustrates Israel's future cleansing from sin and their reinstatement as a priestly nation. The vision, the vision of Joshua ends with an announcement of the ultimate high priest, the coming Messiah, symbolized by a branch and an all-seeing stone. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to review that is because uh, visions four and five really go together. And as we finish four, we've just seen the cleansing of the high priest, and we see that he is now prepared to uh, to assume his purpose as the high priest for Israel, for the upcoming temple. But our fifth night vision is going to be the lampstand and the two olive trees, which is a rather uh, unique vision, but it is closely associated with vision number four. And we see the menorah here. The menorah is the lampstand, and it represents Israel at the end of days. But, you know, what's interesting about the vision is even though the menorah is in the vision, the vision really isn't about the menorah. It's about what is surrounding the menorah. And the indication here is that Israel would rebuild the temple and would fulfill their function as the light to the nations and the Messiah would unite the two offices as king and priest. And the real emphasis here is on the king and the priest, those two different uh, functions. We could say them uh, uh, Jewish functions within the nation. Okay, let me just uh, leave this up. We're in chapter 4, verse 1, beginning in verse 1. And uh, let's turn to to verse 1 of chapter 4. And let me read the chapter. Verse 1 says, Now the angel who talked with me came back and awakened me as a man who was wakened out of his sleep. Notice the as here, the assembly. Two, and he said to me, What do you see? So I said, I'm looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the stand, and on it, we could say probably more literally, seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at the left. Notice the description here is to the right and the left of the bowl, uh, not necessarily to the right and left of the lampstand. Now, they're probably going to be to the right and left of the lampstand, but the emphasis is more on the bowl. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, and this is Zechariah now saying, What are these, my lord? Verse 5, Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. So he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, not by might or by power, but but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, that is the first interpretation of the vision. And now, 
at verse, beginning in verse 7, we really have sort of, of an inserted oracle. And you can almost put a parenthesis around verses 7 through verses 10. Because in this, we no longer have an explanation of what he's seeing, but we have a pronouncement. Verse 7. Who are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Uh, those could also be uh, seen as honor or honor to it. Eight, moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, the hands of Zerubbabel, and this is coming to me, means coming to Zechariah, the hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house or the temple. His hands shall also finish it. So he's laid the foundation. He's also going to to construct the roof that goes on top. Then you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. And then close that parenthesis, and now we see Zerubbabel or Zechariah again. And then I answered and said to him, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and its left? In verse 12, And I further answered and said to him, What are these two olive branches that drip into the receptacles of the two gold pipes from which the golden oil drains? Notice he asks sort of two questions back to back, and I believe that the reason there's not an answer to one of the questions before the other one is that they really both pertain to the same thing. The answer is going to be the same. Verse 13, Then he answered me, the uh, interpreting angel answered me, Zechariah, and said, Do you not know what these are? There's an emphasis. You'll know that the angel, the interpreting angel, instead of just answering his question, both times asks Zerubbabel, or asks Zechariah again, do you not know what these are? And I believe that the reason that that is stated by the interpreting angel that way is that this is beyond human understanding. No. Uh, Zechariah, who is seeing the vision and who is aware of the current situation sees the vision but it doesn't make sense to him and so he's asking the question and the interpreting angel to indicate of course you don't know because it takes supernatural understanding to realize what's happening not only is it going to take supernatural understanding to uh, to comprehend the vision but it's going to take supernatural ability to bring that vision to pass. And I said, no, my Lord. So I said, these are two appointed ones. Notice up to this point, of course, we've had them as two olive trees from which we receive oil. But now he's saying they're not only two sources of oil, but they themselves have been anointed. These are two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Now that last line is, uh, I believe, reflective of 
not simply the current time, but it has uh, a further application. There is going to be two people who are going to be representing the two parts of Israel's, uh, uh, of the nation of Israel. One's political and one is religious. And we're going to have both of them. But the two that we have here, one being Joshua that just has, we've just seen in vision four. So we've seen uh, Joshua in vision four and now we see Zerubbabel's name being mentioned four times in vision five. And so these two are put together and when we finally get to the last line of the fifth vision, we see that we have two olive trees and these two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth, they are representative. They, This is Joshua and Zerubbabel, but they're representative of the one who is going to stand in the end times, who is both the representative of the kingly line, the political line, and the priestly line, which is the religious line, in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the Messiah, the anointed one. All right. Well, let's go back to the beginning here, and let's pick up what we have. Uh, Vision 5 here, I I believe, forms a matching pair with Vision 4, both in terms of its positioning, because it's juxtapositioned with it, it's back-to-back, laying side-by-side with it, but also its subject matter. And both deal with Jewish persons as objects. First of all, we see the high priest as coming out of vision four. We also have this Jewish menorah. And we are also going to see that we have Zerubbabel mentioned. So we have these two individuals, both mentioned historical persons contemporary to the prophet, which I've just named. The prophet, of course, is Zechariah, but we have Joshua and Zerubbabel. Both refer to temple building, the building of the temple. Uh, Zerubbabel is building the temple. He's the one that's organizing it. But the high priest is there as well because he's the one that's responsible for the temple. And therefore, he's involved in the building of the temple as well. And both reach their climax on a strong messianic note. And for all of these reasons, it's to be expected that these two visions are mutually interpretive. We interpret them side by side together. And in addition, because there is a clearer process of theological development in these series of night visions, all, all that has gone before need to be kept in mind as vision five is unfolding. So um, we see that Israel's back in the land. Uh, they, we see that they are uh, discouraged. We see that the, the work on the temple has stopped. Uh, and we see now that in another, uh, another prophet is there at the same time, Haggai. He is encouraging the work to be resumed. And now what we're seeing in these visions is not only will the work be successful, but there's going to be a future temple and a, a more a temple that's even greater than this. Uh, the temple that we had described 
and we'll, we're going to go see this in Haggai 2.3, is nothing to yell grace and grace or honor and honor about, but the one in the future is certainly going to be that way. Verse 1 says, Now the angel, the malach, as we would say in Hebrew, which is messenger, who talked with me, came back and awakened me as a man who is awakened out of his sleep. You'll notice it says that the angel awakens uh, Zachariah here, Zach, wakens him, uh, and that and the one who does awaken him here is the original interpreting angel that we saw back in chapter 1. And it says, and, and Zechariah calls him Lord, but the word Lord here, Adonai, can refer to uh, God. It can refer to the second person of the, the Godhead, but it can also be translated Master or Lord or be understood simply as a term of respect and honor and that's how it's used here Uh, this is not Yahweh and since the last vision vision 4 we see that Zechariah needs to be alerted and the uh, interpreting angel comes back and it says awakens him as if he had been asleep well he's not asleep he's awake because he's seeing these visions and he's just finished a vision and he's probably still focused. He may even be in somewhat of, you know, lost in thought with regard to that vision. And the interpreting angel comes back and, hey, wake up. We're ready for the next one. And that's exactly what happens here, I think. He is, he alerts Zachariah for the next one. It's not that he's, he's falling asleep in between these because I would imagine this is a pretty exciting time. He's just transfixed on that last one, and now it's time to be brought uh, for the fifth one to be brought to his attention. Uh, so he's aroused, we can say. He's aroused. He's stirred uh, as a man who had been asleep. Uh, and these visions are coming in quick succession. Uh, one more time, notice that this is not a dream. There are some who say that, well, uh, this is uh, Zechariah, He's in sort of a uh, an altered state of consciousness and his subconsciousness is providing this information. Uh, well, no, that's not what this is. It's not a dream. It's a vision. But even if it was a dream, God is capable of communicating divine information, uh, disclosing it, divine revelation through dreams and visions. And that's what we have here. Um, and then also... Remember that all eight of these are going to come at one time in one night. We believe that they were just one right after the other. And this is probably maybe uh, the only place that we see this. But what this tells us is that this information that is being sent to Zechariah is meant to be encouraging. It's encouraging information. And it is necessary for him to deliver this to reveal this to Israel just as soon as he can so that they will be encouraged uh, return to working on the temple finish the temple and then begin to worship and honor the Lord Uh, this will be Zechariah's fifth vision and this one is designated to encourage Zerubbabel the previous one was meant to encourage Joshua and, of course, Israel, the Jews. 
But this one is meant to encourage Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, who came back with the first party of exiles. He came back with the first uh, group to return. And you'll remember, the first thing they did was they built the altar. They finished the altar, and then they started to work on the foundation of the temple. And they were interrupted. They were prevented from continuing. Uh, And now... Uh, Zerubbabel needs to be encouraged. He needs to get back on the job. He needs to be a leader of the people so that they will, in fact, finish finish the not only the foundation but the uh, the temple as well. And uh, the other thing that they need to know is that not only are they working towards the construction of this temple. But this temple is going to be, we could say, sort of a representation of the fact that there's going to be a future temple as well. Verse 2. And he, this is the interpreting angel, said to me, What do you see, Zechariah? And I said, I'm looking, and there's a lampstand. And the word here for lampstand is the word menorah. It's a menorah of solid gold. Remember, that's how it was made. Um, Bezael made this of solid gold. Just took a block of gold and he started working it. And um, he fashioned the menorah. And it says, though, it's a lampstand. And this says, with a bowl on top of it. And anybody that was here during the time of uh, the teaching of the temple realizes that the lampstand didn't have a bowl on top of it but this one does and on the and on the stand seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps now there is some difficulty in this translation um, of sevens we have it, the sevens here three times and it's a little bit difficult to tell if the seven that's described here is meant to be a repetition of the seven lamps, whether there's seven pipes and then there are back to seven lamps, or whether there are seven sevens of pipes. And there are some translations and some interpretations that see this not as seven pipes, but as 49 pipes, seven times seven. And really there's, it's, it's difficult to determine exactly how that should be understood. Um, I, it, it's difficult for me to believe it should be understood as 49 pipes that are feeding the seven lamps. Uh, I think that we have the repetition of seven here to get the sense of the completeness of it, that we have uh, a, a, the, that the, the supply that's coming from the bowls here is a perfect uh, supply. It's a complete supply. And I think that's the better understanding than trying to see 49 different pipes that are coming from it. Um, It would be difficult, I would think, to see all of those and um, get them coming into the the lamp. So uh, if if you're ever reading about this and there's a question... Uh, be it known that theologically or interpretively here it's a bit difficult simply because of the Hebrew. Now, 
the lampstand here, or the menorah, is one of the images that is uh, often and usually recognized as, or would, would be immediately recognized as one of the pieces of furniture of the tabernacle and the temple. And because of that, it's often seen as, represent, uh, as a representation of Israel. Just like in some passages we'll see that the, the vine, the vineyard, is a representation of Israel, or an olive tree, or Zion is. And here, this seems to be a representation of Israel. But what's interesting here uh, is that uh, the menorah, uh, there's really no uh, question about the menorah we're really more interested in what is happening around the menorah. So what is happening to Israel is seems to be uh, what is being emphasized. Uh, here, the menorah probably does represent Israel, but uh, and Israel is in, in focus, but it's not what's primarily being described. The no- menorah here as we remember, was made of one piece of pure gold reflecting the deity of Christ, the the unity and the deity of Christ. It consists of a central lamp with three branches extending from each side. So we have one one branch. Where is my... Uh, Let's see here. One of these days. Figure out how this works a little better. Okay. Well, I'm going to give you a picture of the menorah here in a second. I like the way this is bringing up things I'm not trying to find. Here it is. There we go. This is the vision. You'll notice we have a central, uh, a central stand, a central branch, I guess we can call that. And then there are three extending out on either side so that we have three lamps and on either side, one in the middle, which gives us seven, and on the top of each one of those branches is a little cup. And the way that this worked is that in the cup, they would place a place the oil, and then in the oil, they would place the wick, and then they would light the wick. And of course, that, that cup, uh, we believe, has a little, little sort of a little spout on it, and that's where the wick would be. And the wick would, you know, would, as we often say, use the word wick. It would wick the oil. The oil would work its way up the wick, and then it would burn. And uh, it was meant to be, uh, to kept burning night and day. Here, of course, we have this bowl that is over it. And from the bowl, we see seven pipes that are coming down to the cup the little cup on top. It was described as an almond flower. And then on either side, there are various pictures of this. Uh, You could see big trees, olive trees, but I just chose to put the two branches there so you can see that. There are pipes coming from the tree into the bowl. 
Now, what is highly unusual about this is that the lampstand that was in the tabernacle and the lampstand that is in the temple, of course, needed to be administered by uh, a human, by the high priest. He's the one that would put the oil in. He's the one that would put the wick in. He's the one that would trim the wick. And he's the one that would ensure that the, the oil, uh, that the, the uh, uh, flame is burning in each one of them continually. Well, if you look at this, if you have oil being supplied as it is, the sense that we have here is that this is uh, an operation that doesn't need human hands. Not only doesn't it need human hands, but it's meant to go on per, uh, perpetually. And I think that that is uh, the idea. The oil's not poured into the lamps by the Levites, uh, but comes from the olive trees via the reservoir, and from the reservoir through the pipes to the cups. And this means that there, again, is no human hand or effort involved in delivering the oil to the lamps. The oil is purely delivered by divine means. Uh, we have one other difference here, is that, of course, the olive trees are not in the tabernacle, they're not in the temple, and therefore the trees that are uh, yielding their oil directly, are it's done without the olive being plucked, without them being crushed, and without the oil being therefore uh, gathered. So it's suggestive here of this, again, being something that's perpetuated. It's coming from outside human means. All right, verse, now on to verse 3. Verse 3, two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. Again, what we see here is that the main source of the lamp oil um, is from the olive trees, and that's normal. In ancient uh, Palestine, it was olive oil that was used. And so it's not surprising to see that the olive oil is being used. But the fact that there are two means in the vision is sort of interesting. Why not just one olive tree? Why do you need two? Or if you need two, why not three? But we have two. And again, I believe that the reason for this is because there are two aspects of the Messiah. Two aspects of the Messiah is his the kingly side and the priestly side and those are both involved here they're going to be represented by Zerubbabel who is in the line of Jehoiakim and uh, Joshua who is in the line of Zadok or of Aaron so we have the Davidic line and we have the Aaronic line here that's what we see verse 4 so I answered uh, so I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? Then the, an then the angel answered, answer who talked with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. In other words, uh, Zachariah is baffled here, but he's not shy about asking for clarification. You know, some of us would probably not ask. We'd just stand there and kind of look at it and say, oh, That's a pretty, that's a nice vision. I uh, don't think I'll ask. Zechariah wants to know what they are. And again, I think the reason that the, the angel asks him is to indicate that, of course you don't know. You know, this is going to take a supernatural explanation, an interpretation. 
as it's going to take to execute it. And that's why we have in verse 6, So he, the interpretive angel, answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Now, when he says, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, he's saying that this vision is the same as the spoken word. You're seeing the vision. And this is not extraneous or it's not just supplemental. No, this is the word of the Lord. So this vision carries the weight of both spoken and written word. Here it is. And who is it for? It's for Zerubbabel. So we add the second part of the team here. We've got Joshua who's just been cleansed and he's standing by waiting uh, with his clean robes on, ready to serve, and now we bring Zerubbabel in. This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel, you're supposed to do th- something. Not by might, and this is our Hebrew word, chayl. Some of you will recognize, remember that word. Not by power, choach, uh, military power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Tzaboth. Tzaboth. All right. We have here three different words for what I would describe as power, authority, or force. And the first one is chayl. And the chayl here is often used for um, the word that va- It can be used for valiant. That's how we often translate it. Sometimes we translate it to mean honorable. Other times uh, it seems to indicate wealth. And that's how it's, uh, some interpreters will use it in other parts of the Bible. We see that Ruth is described this way. We see that Boaz is described this way. Um, and in both cases, it probably has to do with that they were valiant, that they were honorable. Here, and I think most places where we see the word chayl used, it refers to military strength, um, military force. And I think that's what it means here. So it's not by military force, nor by power, military prowess. Uh, this word for power means military prowess or ability. But by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Uh, what he's saying is that what's going to be accomplished here in Israel is not going to be accomplished by just human ability, human force. It's going to be accomplished by the Spirit of God, God the Holy Spirit. It's kind of an interesting uh, approach um, that uh, the temple, which is now going to be accomplished by human hands, but they're going to do it in the strength of the Lord. But later on, when we see the millennial kingdom, it is truly not going to be done with human hands. It's going to be done by the power of God. And you'll notice here it says, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. And my spirit here, of course, is a reference to God the Holy Spirit. Um, God the Holy Spirit is somewhat masked in the Old Testament. We do see him at creation, hovering over the water. Uh, we do see him at other times and places. But for the most part, uh, God the Holy Spirit seems to be truly in the background. Um, and he seems to be unmasked when we get to the New Testament. But we believe that in the Old Testament, he's essentially doing much of the same work that he's doing that we see him doing in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we simply know that when the Lord Jesus Christ was getting to uh, getting ready to ascend, 
uh, to his father that he said, I'm going to ask for the Holy Spirit to come and to empower you and to be the paraclete, uh, the comforter, the advocate. He will remind you of things that uh, I've said. And one of the reasons they needed to remember that, not only so they could be obedient, but so they could record it. But here we see uh, God the Holy Spirit, uh, an indication of him having an impact here, being involved. Uh, I think that the idea is that in the future, there'll be a tremendous display of the power of God to establish the messianic kingdom. And we know that that is going to be true. Uh, But now, Zerubbabel is going to accomplish the mighty works also by God the Holy Spirit. And that's what we see uh, being listed here. Now, uh, that was verse 6. Now, verses 7 through 10, we're going to take these uh, rather quickly here, and then so we can get down to verse 11, because uh, Zechariah wants to know uh, what in the world are these two olive trees? You kind of already know. Uh, Zechariah doesn't let them make sure he gets informed. Uh, but we have now, in verses 7 through 10, we have, I think, is sort of a, an insertion, a parenthesis of a pronouncement. And verse 7 says... Who are you, O great mountain? And when we read the second part of this, we sometimes would we think that maybe the mountain is an indication of a nation, because very often that's what a mountain means, and it's very often a reference to maybe uh, the uh, the nation of Israel or to another nation. We've seen it in reference to Babylon. We we we've seen it in relation to even uh, Persia. But here I think it's just resistance because in the next line it says, this mountain before Zerubbabel, you shall become a plain. It's going to disappear. And that is the resistance. So the mountain here is, it's, it seems like the resistance is overwhelming. It's too much. But before Zerubbabel, because he is now acting in my might, the might of God the Holy Spirit, it's going to disappear. And, of course, the application for us is the same. You know, very often we think that there is a mountain of resistance or there's a mountain of trouble in front of us. But in front of us, it can disappear if we're relying on the Lord. And that's what's going to happen in Judah as they begin to work on the the temple again. And it says, And he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. The capstone here, um, capstone is, is can be seen as two different things. And here can, is the translation is capstone. It's literally top stone. Uh, but a capstone was that stone that was sort of V-shaped that would go at the top of the ark, of an ark, over a, a doorway. Uh, and therefore, it was often seen as the last stone to go into something. Uh, or a capstone could go in the top of the building, uh, along maybe a center line. Uh, a top stone, of course, would be seen that way. It's the top. And therefore, uh, Zerubbabel has not only started the foundation, but he's going to put the top stone on it. He's going to finish it. So this is uh, good news for Zerubbabel that he would finish it and he's going to finish it with shouts of grace grace to it in other words honor to that temple and hold your 
well, let's let's go on to verse eight here, and then we'll go over to uh, Haggai. Verse eight. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, "The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple; his hands also shall finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you." Uh, this is Zechariah talking to Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel being encouraged, saying that Zerubbabel, you can be. Uh, or uh, let's see here. Uh, yes, Zechariah is saying that he can be confident that he will finish the temple because God has sent Zechariah to him. Verse ten: For who has despised the day of small things? Now turn just a few pages to Haggai. Haggai chapter 2. Just back, we have Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. So the third book from the end of the Old Testament. Haggai chapter 2. says in verse 3, Who is left among you who saw this temple in its former glory? In other words, Solomon's temple. And how do you see it now? In comparison with it, it uh, in comparison with it, is this not in your eyes as nothing? In other words, in comparison to Solomon's temple, this temple was it was scrawny. It was not attractive. It was not beautiful. It was not magnificent. It was not uh, something that could be considered as being very glorifying to the Lord, if that's what we really were trying to make that comparison. And so here in verse 10, for who has despised the day of small things? That is a recognition of what Zechariah is seeing and hearing from Haggai. Haggai is prophesying at the same time. And Zechariah is there hearing the people looking at this and saying, this is really nothing in comparison. I, this is really uh, very, not only disappointing, but it, it's discouraging beyond just uh, you know the fact that it's small. How in the world are we going to worship the Lord here? How can we even consider this as having been much of an accomplishment? And then it says in the rest of verse 10, For these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. And the question would be, what are these sevens? Well, it's explained in the next clause. They are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. Um, the idea here is that the eyes of the Lord is often seen as the omniscience, all-knowing, the all-presence. And here it says that they scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. They, they are well, the Lord is well aware of what's happening here. He's well aware that we're not building a temple that is the same as Solomon's temple. He understands that it's not going to have the same impression. He understands that uh, this temple is uh, considered to be uh, minuscule and insignificant in comparison. But to the Lord, this is still important because the temple is being built. It's being built to the best of their ability, the way that the Lord is leading them to do it. And he rejoices in it. The Lord is rejoicing in what's happening here.
And then verses 11 through 12, 13, and 14 finish us in this, this vision. It says, Then I answered and said to him, as we close the parenthesis there at 10, What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and its left? You'll notice he never really asked about the menorah. He's asking about what in the world is the rest of this because he recognizes what the menorah, he understands the menorah. He doesn't need that described to him, but he's never seen this other stuff. What are these two olive trees at the right of the lampstand and its left? And I further answered him, the uh, uh, angel, interpreting angel, said to him, What? Uh, and I further answered and said to him, What? Zachariah saying to the interpreting angel, What are these two olive branches that dip into the receptacles of these two gold pipes, which are the golden drains? And I say golden drains here because oil is not found in the Hebrew text, it's just golden. And so this phrase, uh, golden drains or golden empties, empties golden, uh, since there are two olive trees the addition of the word oil is probably appropriate. But what is being seen is they're seeing this golden fluid that is coming out of the olive trees into the receptacle, the reservoir, and then from there into the cups, into the olive uh, flowers that hold the flame. And it's a color of gold. And what's probably understood here is as he describes it as golden, and I think there's a real reason. You know, this it is that color, but why doesn't he just say the oil that's coming out? But he describes it as the golden sort of a golden flow here. Well, I think it's not because of the fact that it's the oil, and it's not that it's necessarily the fuel, but it's what it represents. It's the value of it. And the value of it here is it's the power of God. This is the authority and the majesty of God that is um, that is fueling the menorah, that is providing the ability of Israel to be the light to the world. That's what the sense is here. The menorah and all its equipment are pure gold, and so is the fuel that's coming to the menorah. This means that what is coming from these olive trees to fuel the menorah is what is important. The oil is the power of God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is the ability and the guarantee that what God has said would happen will happen. And it is happening. Then he answered me and said, Do you know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. And he said, These are two anointed ones who stand beside the Lord of the whole earth. Now, you'll notice again and I mentioned this at the beginning because I wanted to mention it first at the beginning and then address it later the two anointed ones now describe the two olive trees before they were just olive trees but now they are two anointed ones up to this point they were objects that were supplying the oil but now they are two objects that have been anointed by the oil and in ancient Israel, there were only two offices that required anointing. One is the office of king, and the other was the office of the high priest. And I, again, the symbolism here is that we're representing both of those functions. 
the functions of the king, the political function of king, and the spiritual or religious function of the high priest. And that's why we now describe them as being anointed ones. And uh, in Z's vision here, in Zechariah's vision, the, the anointing was associated with the Spirit of God. And it spoke of both his presence and his enablement. And it's apparent that the anointing, that the interpreting angel, by referring to the anointed ones with, with such specificity, has in mind these two anointed offices, the priest and the king. And they are merged in the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Messiah. They are merged with him. Um, these two, at that time, one was Zerubbabel and one was Joshua, are standing by and they're ready to serve him. And therefore, um, what we have here at the end, verse 14, is that the branches refer to those functions which the Messiah himself will possess. And therefore, this is not only a recognition of what's happening currently, but it's a, pro it's a prophecy that looks forward to the millennial kingdom, the millennial temple, and the Lord Jesus Christ is the Messiah who will be there. All right, let's close our, let's bow our heads in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we're thankful that these passages of Scripture uh, communicate to us what is going to happen in the future. Uh, it was encouraging to Israel, and it should be encouraging to us. We have an extraordinary future ourselves as church age believers. Because in our resurrection bodies, we will be returning with the Lord to rule and reign or serve him in some way in the millennium, during this millennial kingdom. We will see the millennial temple and, and we will be there as our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, rules in this, in this future time, these thousand years. And therefore, Father, this is, should be very much of an encouragement to us. What the Lord has predicted will come, will come to pass. And it will come to pass by the power of God the Holy Spirit working not only in the humans at that time, but it's going to come to pass in the future as the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together in bringing about this kingdom. We're thankful for the text that we have, Father. And we also pray that we would learn the lesson from our... Uh, our video that we started uh, the evening is that we don't listen to so much of the stories we hear because so much of what we hear is simply not true. We have to believe, but one, one area where we can believe, and that's in the text of Scripture. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.